To start things off, read with me Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Key in with me again on verse 10, the second half. Honor one another above yourselves. Honor. Now, there's a word we don't hear very often in our city. Am I right? A few months ago, I was chatting to a woman who's on our board of directors, former VP of a Fortune 100 company, traveled all over the world for her job, and recently retired in Portland. And somehow we got to chatting about Portland's lowbrow, like, dress code culture. And she was exasperated. She said after, you know, years, she would put on a parties as part of her job. And she said, you know, in Portland, it's the worst. If you, put on a, if you invite people to a black tie party, I've never been invited to a black tie party, by the way, but apparently it's out of my league. But if you invite people to a black tie party in Portland, they show up in a suit and tie. If you invite people to a formal party, they show up in cocktail attire. And if you invite people with cocktail attire, they show up in a t-shirt and shorts. And I started to chuckle. And then she said, and she was not, she was serious. She said, it's so dishonoring. That's a weird word choice, dishonoring. I mean, I would have said it's so chillaxed, you know, <laughs> or that's so Portland. Or if I was in a bit grumpy mood, I would have said, you know, that's so unsophisticated. You know, those people that don't go to black tie parties, <laughs> those people. Um, I don't know what I would have said, but that, that's an interesting frame from somebody who's traveled the world. That's so dishonoring. Then a few weeks ago, I was on vacation, and I was reading this um, social psychologist research project around purity rights in ancient cultures. Please don't judge how I spend my free time, all right? I just, <laughs> I feel that shame from you right now. It was actually fascinating. And as I was reading, there was a line from a Japanese academic about how odd it is to a Japanese or an Eastern mind that Americans wear shoes in one another's homes and track detrius from the city into each other's private space. And this academic said, quote, it's so dishonoring. I thought, there's that word again. Now, I would have said it's so annoying, you know what I mean? Because, like, we host parties a lot in our house, and there's always, like, a number of people. Like, like, there's 40 pairs of shoes out front. You know, you think, like, you get the memo, right? And they still wear the shoes in the house. You know what I mean? It's just like, whatever. And I would have said, well, it's annoying. You got to clean up after, and it's winter or whatever. But it's that weird framework. It's so dishonoring. Then, a few days ago, I was on my lunchtime run with Matt around the river, and we were running over the Hawthorne Bridge. And down on the sidewalk was that street art line that's been around the city for about a year that said Jesus was brown, which is theologically and historically true. 
And we're running over it, but it was interesting. Somebody had come back along and crossed out the word brown, and over it spray-painted A, and then the word for a man's genitalia. And immediately, I just thought of that word. Man, that's so dishonoring. Whatever you think about God or religion, I mean, nobody would ever talk that way about Buddha or Socrates. Man, what? That's so dishonoring, even to live in a city like that. It's interesting. But you know, in our culture, for most of us, honor is a foreign concept. When I hear a word like honor, I'm not really sure what I think of. I think of like a tragic honor killing that I read about in the news of a woman and some kind of a, a, a militant Islamic culture. Or I think about how sociologists talk about honor culture, and apparently 80% of the world is an honor culture, which is, again, weird to the Western mind. Or I hear Bethany talk about honor culture in the South. I don't really know what that means. I take it to mean like you make a snide comment about somebody's girlfriend, and like, you, me, parking lot, 9 p.m. <laughs> I don't know if that's what it actually means, but that's my West Coast interpretation. In America, we don't really have much of, if any, of a value for honor in our culture. We have a few very anemic examples. Mother's Day is, I think, the best one, where like, we, we honor our mom you know, with all, a phone call. <laughs> That's like, the legitimacy of it. You know? We're like, Mom, I love you. I would, literally would not be alive without you. My relationship with you started with pain. I'm sorry, not much has changed in 24 <laughs> years. I honor you. Father's Day, less so. Or I think of Veterans Day, where we honor soldiers who have died for our nation. But really, what most of us do on that day is maybe put up a flag and just barbecue. There's really not much to it. And when I think about honor or a culture of honor inside the church, until very recently, if I'm if to shoot straight with you, all that came to mind was the abuse of honor by celebrity pastors. I remember years ago, um, I was on vacation, it was Christmas time, and I went to, I had the Sunday off, so I went to visit this well-known Pentecostal megachurch. I was excited to be there, and we get to the offering portion of the gathering, and it's a Pentecostal church, so there's like a 10-minute kind of mini-sermon on tithing. I'm like, all right, that's not my thing, but I can hang, and I probably should do that back at my church, but I just don't have the guts. Um, Okay, I can hang. Then there's another song. Then one of the main pastors gets up, not the senior pastor, and goes into this like spiel about, hey, this is a very special weekend for us. We do this every single year. This is our weekend where we give a love offering to senior pastors, so-and-so and so-and-so, the husband and the wife. And this is our chance to honor them. And we just really want all of you to reach deep. This is our time to give, to show how much we thank them and we appreciate. And I'm just like doing the math in my head. This is a huge church, multiple times the size of our church. It's a Pentecostal church, which means the giving is likely three times more than a church like ours. And these two both already have salaries. And I'm like, this, this love offering is likely like far more than I make in a year. And my first thought was, are there any job openings at this church? <laughs> um, no, no that, that's not actually my thought. And I just thought, uh, like I was sick to my stomach. Senior pastor gets up, does a very good sermon, and then the end of the gathering, this same other pastor gets up, does a third offering call for this love offering, goes into another five minute, don't miss it, this is the weekend, we need all of you to give, I wanna make sure this is our way to honor them. And I just remember, I walked away, and I was really like trying to not have cynicism in my heart, and just failing, like just so turned off 
by the whole thing. So honestly, you know what I did for the last, my, not the last 10 years, my whole adult life? I just have ignored the New Testament's teaching on honor and just said, well, it's the abuse of it and just put that, the whole thing. And I think just played right into the enemy's hands and for our church. But over the last year or two, a number of my friends, like this is not even from me, like this is a number of my friends have been talking about this. Alex Retman that we all know and love before he left to plant Saints Hill last summer and he's coming back in a few weeks, but um, was talking a lot about this. And I remember thinking, that is so weird, honor. Like what, what is this? This is not, this is America. We don't do that here, you know? And my friend John Tyson, who's here recently, has been talking to me about this a lot and teaching on this. In fact, a lot of tonight's teaching, I'm borrowing heavily from his work, which is fantastic on this. Several of my kind of charismatic Anglican friends have been talking about this under influence of the Pentecostal church. And, and I'm not going to lie, like, I was so skeptical at first. But the longer I sit with this idea of honor, the more I, like, actually open up my heart to whatever the spirit of Jesus might have for me and for us in it, the more I realize that I have been missing it royally in this area. So I don't stand up here tonight with like, hey everybody, I have this down, follow me as I follow Christ kind of thing. Like let me just give you three easy steps how to like embody this. I stand up here before you cut to the heart. This is in my mind, but it's not all the way in my muscle memory yet. And there was a lot of repentance in the Comer household over the last few days as I was gearing up to give this teaching. The title for tonight's teaching is A Community of Honor and a Culture of Contempt. It's a very simple teaching. You'll get the gist of it in about five or 10 minutes, and then I'll just keep talking <laughs> for all sorts of reasons. Um, but the main one is, because I really want this to sink into our gut. Like, if we were to actually, in Jesus' language, have ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church on this one, I think it would reshape how we do relationship and community and church from the ground up, all right? And that's not, like, that's not to overpromise. I really think that. To start off, Romans chapter 12, that passage that we read just a few minutes ago is Paul's vision of a community in love, right? So um, if you know anything about Paul's letters, theologians point out the first part of most of his letters is theology, and the end is practice. There's only a seam point in the beginning in Romans, which is kind of his magnum opus, at least at a theological level. The theology is chapters 1 through 11. Depending on how you read it, my reading of it, not that that matters, but is that the last three chapters are the climax of Paul's case, and it's all about how Jew and Gentile, two different racial groups, come together in a new multi-ethnic family of God. Then, chapter 12, verse 1, he writes, therefore, and he shifts gears into practice. And there's some great stuff about worship, about gifts in the church, and then you have this little section that we read, two paragraphs, dense, tight, full of 13 commands about how we are to live together in relationship in this new multi-ethnic community of love. And most scholars point out that of the 13 commands that we read, they're really just specific examples of the first command, which is to love. We all love this idea of a community of love. That doesn't sound countercultural at all because love is such a benign word in our culture. But once you actually drill down to what do we mean by love, it starts to get a little bit of teeth. So all we really want to do for the next few weeks before we jump back into Matthew is to take a few of these, not all 13, just a few of these specific examples of how do we actually live as a community of love. And tonight we just want to key in on this one very simple idea of honor one another above yourselves. Now, what is honor? The word used by Paul is teme. Can you say that? 
Well done. It can also be translated value or price. I read up a little bit on the lexicography, and it was originally a financial word. Like if you read the Odyssey, um, that's how it's used in that context. To honor somebody was to give them a gift of money or a thing in keeping with their value or status. In fact, it's where we get the word honorarium. So think about that. That's a helpful English concept for me. We give an honorarium normally when somebody of value or status who has something special that we don't have to deposit comes to our community to deposit something into us, and we give them a gift of, in our case, money, and normally it's in keeping with the level of value or status that we assign to them, an honorarium. All that to say, to honor someone is to assign value to a person. Or put another way, to recognize the value of their contribution to our life and community. So in the language of biblical theology, glory, which is another word that we don't use a lot, is the implicit value has, that a person has, and honor is the value that we then assign to a person. For example, God has glory with or without our honor, with whether we worship him or spray paint obscenities on the sidewalk, God has glory. Worship is a way that we, and we'll do it in just a few minutes, that we, by a few minutes, I mean in an hour and a half, worship <laughs> is a way, don't get too excited now, is a way that we honor God. I think of Revelation 5, which is a glimpse into what, depending on how you interpret it, like, I think it is a glimpse into heaven right now as we speak. What's going on right now in the heavens? Revelation 5. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne, God, and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. Here's what they were saying. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Those are all basically synonyms. Then I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and what? Honor and glory and power forever and ever. They, what's going on right now in heaven? A multitude is recognizing the value of God recognizing the contribution of God to the world. Now, Paul's command is to honor, in, this part, in Romans 12, to honor one another, to recognize the value and the contribution of each member of the community. So it's not flattery. It's not to brown-nose your boss to work your way up in the company or whatever. It's not like an inane comment on social media, I love you. It's like an actual way where your heart is quick to see the good in somebody, to value somebody, to respect them, to live with gratitude, appreciation, to recognize and acknowledge this is specific about you and what you offer into my life. And what I love about Paul's command to honor is it's not honor a visiting celebrity, honor me as the church planter, or honor me as an apostle, or honor this genius or whatever. No, it's just honor one another. I read this um, random study a few days ago entitled Automated Social Hierarchy Detection Through Email Network Analysis. You're welcome to judge me at this point, but hey, <laughs> this was on work time. From Columbia University, basically they analyzed tens of thousands of email data from a massive corporation, and they found that you can chart how important somebody is in a work environment by how long it takes people to respond to their email. 
So the more important you are, the quicker you get an email back. The less important you are, sorry. You know what I mean? Some of you are thinking, dang, right now, or whatever. I'm, and if I owe you an email, don't read anything into that at all. That's just me. I hate email, you know? But I read that, I started laughing. Like, I, like I, I have this weird, I literally hate email. I do email once a week. I dread it all week long. And so I'm really attempt to be disciplined. I have this weird job where I, like, I need lots of time to read automated social hierarchy stuff, you know? You're like, you don't need time to read that. Stop, please, for all of our sake. What Paul is saying is we are to treat every single person like they're some celebrity or they're some really very important person, as if they are of high value. I think of that paragraph um, in The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis where he writes, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. That person next to you just looks like Joe in a T-shirt. He's immortal. Some of you are like, I am Joe, and I'm in a T-shirt. Like, <laughs> it was a figure of speech. But like, <laughs> he is not a mere mortal. The woman to your left is not a mere, there are no ordinary people. Last week, um, we had the cast at our morning gathering. We had a number of uh, the cast from Wicked that was in town from New York at church. And we had, they were wonderful, very, very delightful. And at one point, uh, as worship was starting, I leaned over to my wife and my kids, and my son has done a, a little bit of acting in town, and, and I was like, hey, that's the cast of, of Wicked, like they're famous New York kind of celebrities. And we're like, ooh, wow, that's, that's cool, you're right? And then I got to thinking, like, what if we were to treat everybody that way? Hey, that's, that's Sarah, mother of two kids. Are you serious? Sarah, mother of two kids, is here? Oh my gosh. I want to I meet her. I need to like, I, it's an honor to meet you, Sarah. It is such an honor. This, this is Sammy. Wow, it's really amazing to see Sammy in person. I just want to honor you or whatever. We laugh because we don't treat people that way. I think who would do that? Jesus would do that. What if his followers were to do that? In fact, the New Testament, I love the NIV, but the New Testament, um, at least the NIV translation in English, it doesn't really com- convey the level of like emotion in the Greek text. A few other translations have, quote, outdo one another in showing honor. Like it's a competition. Some of you are really competitive. You're like, I got this. I will out-honor you, you know? <laughs> but the idea is of a community that's just tripping over each other. Let me honor you. No, let me honor you. No, let me give way to your preference. No, let me give way to your preference. Like just this community that, in all seriousness, is tripping over itself to honor one another. Now, this is just one of many commands in the Library of Scripture to honor. Let me give you a small sampling of a few more specific examples. The top of the list is from the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. Children are to honor their parents, and that does not mean like just little kids, children in general, adult or not. 1 Peter 3, 7, um, husbands are to honor their wives. And then there's that crazy line, and, and the weaker partner thing is a whole other teaching. It's actually a beautiful meaning. I don't have time to get into that. But treat them with respect is how it's translated in the NIV, but it's honor there. Notice that last line, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. That's crazy. In Peter's framework, when you dishonor somebody you're in close relationship with, in particular if it's a soulmate, if you want to use that language, or a spouse, a husband, or a wife, you actually hinder your prayers. You create some kind of blockage between you and heaven and the flow of life and blessing from the creator into your created life. 
Man, that is strong language for how we are to speak to our spouse or people in relationship with. 1 Timothy 6, um, slaves are to honor their masters. Now, this is, this is emotionally loaded for us. Slavery, and this is a whole other teaching, slavery in the ancient Mediterranean is not how we think of slavery in the transcontinental slave trade in our nation. It was not based on race. It was rarely for life. It was more like indentured servitude. Not that it was a good thing. It just was very different. And in Paul's framework, slaves, or we would say an employee, that's not a one-to-one application, but it's the closest thing we have in our world, are to honor their masters, or we would say employers. Now, I mean, think of how much griping we do about our boss, how much bad mouth, the gossip that we often do with other coworkers, how we drag people down, how we demean, like, that's so against the heart of Jesus. Romans 13, oh man, this will cut you to the heart. We are to honor all of those that are, quote, governing authorities. Now, if you're thinking, yeah, but like, Paul, you have no idea what our governing authorities are like. (laughs) Most scholars date Romans to during the reign of Caesar Nero. If you know anything about ancient Roman history, Nero was the worst of the worst. He would literally cover followers of Jesus in wax put them in his garden, nailed to a pole, and light them on fire as human candles, torture them to death. I mean, he was horrific. I'm not, I'm not trying to draw some comparison. I'm just trying to say we get no excuse. Paul was later imprisoned by Nero. And yet he says, even those that are not worthy of honor for character, we treat with honor because of the office and the authority. Man, what if we were to honor whether it's President Trump for you or Pelosi or the squad or whoever it is for you that's on the other side from your vantage point, man, what if we were to honor those in authority? 1 Thessalonians 5, now we ask, brothers and sisters, acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, that he hears pastors, and who admonish you, and then in Greek it's honor, or in the NIV it's hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. That's about me, people, I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> Unless, that is about me, actually, but it's about lots of other people in our church, too. That is one example. And honor for leaders is a key thing, is a whole other thing, because you get the leaders that you deserve, for better or for worse. One of the problems, I think, in our political realm right now is there's so much dishonor of authority that you begin to wonder, like, I say this to my friends all the time, who would want to run for president of the United States? Who would want to run for office? You're just signing up to have people shred you, no matter who you are. Like, and so it begins to cull the kind of people that we actually would want to be an authority over us, and it begins to attract people that have other motivations. I'm not saying that's true of all politicians. I'm just saying I think it is an acute issue. Well, you get the leaders that you deserve. Don't put that on the podcast. It's not in my notes for good reason. But we're to honor leaders in the church, unless you think, seriously, unless you think that is some self-serving thing, it's not at all. It goes both ways. 1 Corinthians 12, um, writing about this metaphor of the church as a, as a body, Paul has this, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. I love his analogy of the foot, like how many of you woke up this morning and just said, foot, I honor you. I'm grateful for your contribution to my life. Anybody? No. Anybody ever had a foot injury? Yeah. It's a pain. Like, it's like all of a sudden you realize how dependent you are on this thing that you never even think about. I'll never forget, I used to play in this band. We weren't very good, but we were just 
barely good enough to go on tour. And we were touring a little bit, and we, I'm really going to embarrass myself and date myself. We were opening for this band called Sonic Flood. I don't know if anybody remember them, but it was a thing. So we're opening for this band, and we get to the end of our set, and I climb up on top of the speaker stack. We're down in the Bay Area at this like, giant festival. And I climb up on the top of the speaker stack, and I'm just like ready to just go all third eye blind. It's a band none of you have ever heard of, but I was really into. And I literally jump off on the last thing, power chord, then nail the ending, and have to be carried off stage straight to the hospital because I seriously messed up my feet. I got these things I'd never even heard of called contusions, which is like a bruise on your bone. I could not walk for days. It is so not rock and roll to sit in a chair. And I put like really loud music. It was so not cool. And all of a sudden, she remembered this acute gratitude for my feet. I honor you, feet. I recognize your contribution. Now, Paul's point is, there are people like that in our community that we take for granted, we ignore, we don't think about. But if they were to step out of our community, man, we would feel pain immobilization. I'm not running this church. Most of the people that are actually running this church are the people that are the relational giants in the room that hold people together. I mean, whole groups of people sitting around just one or two relational giants. If they were to step out, this whole thing would suffer and feel the pain. But often we just ignore them. We don't even know their name. We just treat people with this sense of entitlement. Man, Paul, for Paul, we are to honor not just leaders, but we are to honor everyone, in particular those that are not upfront or whatever it is. Naturally, we are to honor God with all that we are, including with our bodies. Take a look at this from 1 Corinthians 6. Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. Whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Dude, talk about, sorry, I just called you all dude. I'm, I mean, <laughs> brothers and sisters. Talk, <laughs> talk about a text to cut across the radical hyper-individualism of our city the insane logic around abortion in our culture and the reframing of it as a social justice issue, what a tragedy. Like when people come to us and say, well, it's not your body. It's not your body. It's not your body. This is not your body. This is God's body. We are to honor God with our body. Now, I don't say this to heap judgment or guilt or shame on any of you, but how many of us think about sexual immorality through the lens of honoring or dishonoring God with our body. But not only are we to honor God, but the beauty is that God's desire is to honor us. We read that poem from Psalm 8 earlier. You have made human beings a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You guys, we rule over the earth. We rule over the earth. We rule over the animal kingdom. We see an animal in need or hear about a tragedy, there, and we want to do something about it or make sure something is done. Like, we have authority over the earth. Often we steward horribly. That's a whole other thing. But what honor has been entrusted to us by God? Or think of this line from Jesus, John 12, my father will honor the one who serves me. That's a promise. That's like, take Jesus to, like, 
Call him on his word. You serve Jesus. You dedicate your life to him and his kingdom, and he will honor you. God the Father will honor you. doesn't say how, but like in some way, God will honor you, which comes as no surprise because honor is at the center of the Godhead itself. The family that is God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the template for all relationships in the family of God. And what we call this community of love at the center of the universe, what we call it is the Trinity. In it, the Father honors the Son. The Son honors the Father. The Spirit is the love and honor between the two. Honor is how they relate to each other. Scholars call it a circle of honor. Therefore, as our friend John Tyson puts it, honor is the operating system of the kingdom of God. It is how relationships operate and function and interact under the rule and reign of God and his will. A community of honor is one where value, respect, gratitude, appreciation, acknowledgement, recognition, humility, generosity, and other-centered love freely flow between all members, not just up to the top, not just the, the random celebrity in the crew, but to all between every single relationship in the kingdom. Now, um, our culture is not like that at all. We're far more likely to end up on the receiving end of sarcasm or a cynical put-down or a lame joke. Ours is a culture of contempt. Now, you could use the word dishonor, and that's fine, but I think a synonym with just a little bit more teeth is contempt. What is that? Well, the dictionary defines contempt as the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving of scorn. It's a mixture of emotions like anger and disgust, throw in a healthy dose of arrogance, and a fair bit of entitlement and ingratitude. If honor is a kind of respect, contempt is a kind of disrespect. If honor is gratitude, contempt is a sense of entitlement. If to honor somebody is to value them, to show contempt for someone is to lower a person's value in their eye. Willard, in his writing on Jesus' teaching on anger in the Sermon on the Mount, which his interpretation is it's actually about contempt, defines it as to look down your nose at somebody. This from Psychology Today. Robert C. Solomon, who's a well-known philosopher, this, I find this helpful, places contempt on the same continuum as resentment and anger, and he argues that the differences between the three is that resentment is directed toward a higher status individual, your boss, a politician, whatever. Anger is directed toward an equal status individual, and contempt is directed toward a lower status individual. Meaning when we show contempt or we have that in our heart, whether or not it comes out of our mouth, we label a person, we judge them, we categorize them, and we lower their value in our mind. David Hume, in his work on contempt, suggests that we do two things. First, we take a piece of someone and make it the whole. We focus on what he called the bad qualities of somebody, and then we view their entire person through the lens of this one bad conversation we had with them or one personality defect or one mistake they made in the past or whatever it is. Sociologists talk about one of the major problems with our generation in particular and online culture is the myth of pure evil, which is the myth that the world is divided into two categories, black and white. On one side, you have innocent, righteous victims, and on the other side, you have wicked, like, guilty perpetrators. 
Now, if all you had was Twitter, you would think that was reality. Anybody who's ever been in a relationship with another human being knows there is a place for that, and it's almost non-existent. It's so rare. And I'm not saying everything's 50-50. It's not at all. But most of the time, relationships are way more messy, complex. There's nuance. We all bear blame, some more than others, but it's just really messy in real life. But we love to divide people into good, evil, us, them, to other people in the language because then we feel safe. We feel like we're better than other people, and we just get to label other people and throw them in a category and look down on them. This, in turn, secondly, enables us to compare ourselves, because we're comparative by nature, not to the real person that is our opponent or boss or spouse or whatever, but to a figment of our imagination that we create around them, to an illusion, and in doing so, feel better about ourselves as superior in some way. So when we show contempt, we lower the other person's value and we raise our own, the opposite of what it means to honor one another above yourselves. Now, this is not to rail on anybody. We all do this. I do this. Again, lots of repentance in the Comer household this last week. Let me give you one touchy example. Just think about the last election cycle. I say this all the time. I'm apolitical. People don't believe me. I am like apolitical to fault. I'm like double-minded in all my ways. I can't make up my mind what I think. But I'm fascinated by politics for the psychology of it and the spirituality of it. I'm a big believer that in a secular society, politics is the new religion. People approach it with religious zeal. They banish the heretic. It's like a witch. It's crazy, I think. Separate conversation. Living in our progressive city through the last election cycle, I was struck by how sensitive we were to either full-on racist language or bare minimum insensitive and ignorant language around race coming in particular from the right, as we should be. It's gotten nothing but worse since then, in particular the last few weeks, just gutted by it. But that was actually not surprising to me. Like, Dr. King was not very long ago. What was surprising to me was how immune we were to the full-on bigotry of the left, vitriolic, puritanical, sanctimonious, angry language coming from like my nice, tolerant, progressive Portland friends because we're more enlightened than everybody else. The level of vitriol with anybody who would dare to have a different opinion on anything from transgenderism to tax reform was staggering. Experts all tell us that bigotry and racism arise from the same place in the human heart. One tends to be a little bit more directed at ethnicity and the other at class. That's an oversimplification. But they are both forms of prejudice from those in power. And what's odd to me is how our city is really woke to one, as it should be. Don't misread this as any kind of, I'm all for that. And basically blind to the other. I mean, how do you think about people who voted differently from you in the last election? Oh, man, I just really respect them as highly intelligent people. <laughs> just like really, like really thought through, non-emotional, very rational in how they think about these things, really good-hearted and humanitarian and just charming all around. <laughs> yeah, that's like a really awkward laugh right there. <laughs> like, no, I do not think of them that way at all. And we think that's normal in the echo chamber of our friends. We do this all the time because, all I'm saying here, again, no guilt, no shame. This is me too. 
We do this because we live in a culture of contempt. We even like it. Jonathan Haidt says this about our love of scandal in the news. Who doesn't love a good little scandal every couple minutes? Um, <laughs> scandal is a great entertainment, and that's what it is, entertainment, because, listen to this, it allows people to feel contempt, a moral emotion that gives feelings of moral superiority, while, this is the kicker, asking nothing in return. With contempt, you don't need to right the wrongs with anger where you need to go do justice, you need to do something about it, or flee the scene as with fear or disgust. And best of all, contempt is made to share. Stories about the moral failings of others are among the most common kinds of gossip. They are a staple of talk radio, and they offer a ready way for people to show what they, that they share a common moral orientation. Tell an acquaintance a cynical story that ends with both of you smirking and shake your, shaking your heads, and voila, you've got a bond. My point is very simple. Ours is a culture not of honor, but of contempt. Now, to end our time, let's just run a little compare and contrast between a culture of honor and a culture of contempt and the kinds of souls and relationships that come out of each. First off, honor or a culture of honor, community of honor, I mean, opens us up to blessing. Contempt shuts us off from the flow of blessing. Danny Silk, in his short book on honor, writes, life flows through honor. He states what he calls the principle of honor, which is this, accurately acknowledging who people are will position us to give them what they deserve and to receive the gift of who they are in our lives. Now, um, the best example I can think of this in the New Testament is a story from Mark chapter 6. A number of very smart teachers point to this as the best example of honor. This is when Jesus goes home to Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many heard him. They're amazed. I mean, people are just blown away at Jesus as a rabbi. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? I mean, it's just brilliant compelling the level of skill, intelligence, insight into the human condition. And what are these remarkable miracles he's performing? So it's like the best talk you've ever heard, like from Ted or whatever. And then the Ted talk person like walks off the stage and like raises somebody from the dead. And you're like, okay, <laughs> that's next level. You know what I mean? Like, let's put that on YouTube, right? But then notice, then they say this, but isn't this the carpenter? Carpenter, by the way, scholars argue it's, it's there because of interpretive tradition. It's actually too fancy of a word. It's tekton in Greek. It just means builder or worker. There wasn't a forest for 100 miles from Jesus' hometown. Nothing, homes, nothing was built out of wood. Maybe one door, maybe a small table. Almost everything was built out of basalt rock. Jesus was more likely a, a, a masonry worker or a construction worker. Is it just like a blue-collar worker to the core? Isn't this Mary's son? Remember Mary, like I'm pregnant from the Holy Spirit, Mary? Oh, yeah, we remember her. Sure. That's what they call it nowadays. Okay. And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Like, remember, these guys all got in trouble in elementary school or whatever. Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Who is he to, to talk like this, like the rabbi? Jesus said to them, and I don't imagine any anger in the tone of his voice. I just imagine sadness in his eyes. A prophet is not without what? Honor, except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them, which is like a bad day for Jesus. <laughs> 
He was amazed at their lack of faith. And then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, meaning, translation, he left. Not in anger. We don't read about a huff. There's no like, how dare you, I threaten lightning from heaven. Just, he left. That's what happens when you dishonor people who are smart. They don't yell at you. They don't scream at you. They don't demand you. They just walk away. Jesus himself said, don't throw your pearls before swine. Shake the dust off your feet. It's not some act of contempt or anger. It's just don't offer something to people that don't or aren't ready to receive it from you at all. But notice what the Nazarenes did. They lowered Jesus' value. He's just one of us. That's his brother. That's his mom. We know this upstart kid. He's just like us. How many of us have this like innate desire to just same everybody and call it equality? And I'm all for equality. But often what we mean by that isn't like legal equality or political equality or human rights equality or human dignity. We mean like everybody should be the same. That is dishonoring to human dignity and responsibility and free will. God doesn't treat people that way. He honors our freedom, even if we wreak havoc with it. But there's this desire in us to just kind of make everybody the same. You're no better than me. You're no more special. We're all the same. To bring people down to our level. And what happens? We miss out. They missed out on the anointing that Jesus was carrying with the kingdom of God. He went away. This is what happens. When we honor people, we get access to whatever people carry, whatever spiritual authority. All of you have some form, some modicum of spiritual authority. When we honor one another, we get access to that spiritual authority. We get access to them in our life. If it's friendship, relationship, conversation, wisdom, prophetic ability, healing, discernment, wealth, resources, opportunities, whatever it is, when we honor people, we get access to whatever it is they carry. When we dishonor people, we cut off ourselves from whatever it is they have to offer. Relationship, wisdom, resources, wealth, opportunity, whatever it is, we cut ourselves off and we miss out on the honor that people have to offer. I think of Paul's line as another example in Ephesians about how children are to obey their parents and for him it's all grounded in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. And then he has this little line, next slide, which is the first commandment with a promise? If you go read the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother is number five. It's the first of the relational commandments, and it's the only one that has a promise so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. So it doesn't say, thou shall not murder so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. Like, there's no reward for not killing somebody. Does that make sense? Like, if you don't murder somebody this week, you don't get, like, a treat at the end of the week. <laughs> There's no, like, wow, now your life will be amazing because you didn't kill somebody. It doesn't work that way. Same with adultery. Same with lying. The one commandment that comes with a blessing, a promise of blessing, is you honor your father and your mother, and it will go well with you, and you may enjoy a long life on the earth. What Paul is saying, same thing, principle of honor. You honor people, you open up your life to the flow of blessing. Man, I can't think of a better example than honor your father and your mother. In a cultural moment with the breakdown of the family, widespread divorce, crisis of masculinity, crisis of women's rights, I mean, it is a gnarly time for the family in our nation. 
sometimes the most difficult people for children to honor, especially in a culture of entitlement and ingratitude and victimization, which there's a legitimate thing of, but there's so much abuse of it. Man, often we dishonor our mom and we dishonor our dad. I've done it. My parents were here last hour and I was thinking about all the ways that I have not honored my father in particular. And when we do that, we cut ourselves off from the flow of blessing. This is just the principle of honor. Honor opens you up to blessing. Dishonor, contempt will shut you off. Secondly, honor brings out the best in people. Contempt brings out the worst. Much of honor is verbal. It has to do with what we speak over people. And a core biblical idea from page one of the Bible on is that words have far more power than most of us realize. They have the power to create reality. Proverbs puts it this way, death and life are in the power of the tongue. With your language, you have the ability to create or to destroy, to raise up and release or to tear down and to decimate. As a general rule, people will live up or down to the words that you speak over them. I was just uh, finishing up this afternoon a little leadership book that somebody on our board gave us called Multipliers. Apparently, it's a, a Nike-like must-read thing. And it's basically about two types of leaders. One they call the multiplier, the other they call the diminisher. And the diminisher is basically like the leader who is the smartest person in the room, and they know they're the smartest person in the room, and they walk in, and they kind of dominate, and they domineer, and people feel just shut down. And um, it was really good. It was a great paradigm, very helpful for me to just think about. But um, what was striking to me was all the research. They've done massive research project around it about how when people work under what they call a diminisher, who kind of has a spirit of contempt and dishonor, they literally get stupider. Like, I know that's not a word, but there's a little irony there for you. Um, their intelli- the testing on IQ goes down by about 20 points. Meaning, we literally have the power to, like, shape people's intelligence to like, all I mean by that is to bring out the best or the worst in people. When you treat people with honor, they often live up to what you say and act honorably. When you treat people with contempt, we all know this from experience, often it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and they act in ways that are contemptible. I see this in so many, um, I'm sure it's in other relationships, but where I see it just from my pastoral vantage point is in marriage and in family. I see this in so many marriages where one, because in marriage, like you live in this intimate relationship, you get frustrated with each other, you go on the emotional journey where when you're dating or on the honeymoon, like all you see is the good in the person, you're actually blind to who they actually are, and we're like, have fun with that when reality comes to you. And, and, then, and then you move forward and often there's a flip and people are actually blind to the good in somebody, and all they think about and focus on is like, I don't like this, and you talk with your mouth full of food, and you're late all the time, and whatever, just hypothetical stuff, you know, what, whatever, no, no bitterness, I mean, whatever, whatever it is, right? And there's this shift, and I, I am shocked, and I'm around like followers of Jesus, pretty amazing people most of the time. I'm shocked at the language of contempt and dishonor and disrespect I hear between spouses. And this is why it's so devastating. Your spouse will likely live into what you say is true about them. 
Right? You, you treat them, you, you make nagging, harping comments, you criticize, you bite, you demean, and I am guilty of all of this. This is not like judgment on anybody here. Man, you often create reality in the soul of the person that you are called by God to unfold into its full potential for glory. See, the same thing in parenting. I'll hear frustrated parents. Again, no judgment on frustrated parents at all. I have three children. Wonderful. Frustrated. Um, but I will hear them say things like, oh, little Johnny, he's such a devil. And, and normally, little Johnny is a devil. Um, <laughs> but I always wonder, like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Like, well, he's hearing his parent say in public, he's a devil. What do you expect him to act like? When his mother, whose job is to nurture him, or his father, whose job is to empower him or her, whatever it is, into their full potential, is speaking that over them? Like one of the easiest things you can ever do as a parent, most of you don't have kids yet, just remember this for later. Just speak the reality you want to see over them. When my boys, I have two boys, they're like frenemies, right? Best of friends, worst of enemies. When they get in a fight, I just sit them down and say, boys, you are best friends. Now, nothing about the situation looks like best friends. <laughs> but that's reality. I speak that reality. Children, you are obedient, respectful, <laughs> responsible, <laughs> pleasant. Some people call that manipulation. I call it Christ-like parenting, all right? <laughs> Whatever. My point is just, listen, we have more power than we think we do in the tongue for great violence, if not physical violence, verbal violence, to emotionally wreak havoc, to relationally destroy and decimate, or to bring life, to release people into their destiny. Jesus would do this. He would honor people that nobody else would honor, people that his society had passed over, a fisherman, a tax collector, a former demoniac, a prostitute. And these people went on to rewrite the course of human history because Jesus saw something in them that nobody else saw, and he called it out with the word of his mouth, and he called them into a destiny, into a future. Uh, that, sure. <laughs> let's, let's just go a little Pentecostal. Like, sure. So, you're like, you just broke from your TED Talk persona, John Mark Homer. Um, Sorry, it won't happen again, I promise. <laughs> so a thought I had, guys, was, um, no, seriously, people live up or down. Finally, honor creates a safe place of trust in a conflict. Contempt activates our deep fear and sabotages all of our attempts at reconciliation. You don't need me to say much about this. You know it. We're all at our best when we feel safe. Our mind and body are calm, rational, open, humble, generous. But the moment that we feel fear, our amygdala, that little gland in our brain, comes online, begins to flood our body with chemicals. We react at that point, and we go into fight or flight. We react in an emotional and irrational way. We yell or defend or blame shift or withdraw or shut up or shut out or walk out the door, whatever it is for our personality. Think about how often we normally confront somebody. We focus on the wrong they've done. We have no gratitude for all the good they have done in our life. We maximize the wrong in our mind, minimize our part in it, gossip to our echo chamber of friends to confirm our bias, and then come to them in a spirit of contempt. How do they respond? Well, not well, because they're just not humble. 
nobody responds well to contempt. Even if the contempt is well-earned, even if the anger or ire, disrespect is well-earned, nobody responds well to contempt. If you don't feel a sense of I'm loved and I'm respected and I'm valued by the person who has a thing with me, you will just go into self-preservation mode and not receive what they have to say, even if they're right. Imagine if we were to come at somebody that we're crosswise with and just say, listen, we need to talk about this. I know, it's, I know we're at odds. But first, I just want you to know that I value you. And I, I respect you as a person. I'm grateful for your contribution to my life and our relationship. It really matters to me. And um, I, we need to talk about this, obviously, but I just want to honor you. Why don't you start? Why don't you share what's on your heart? I have some stuff to say, but I just... I want to honor you because I'm committed to our relationship and to make this work. That's a whole other posture. That's how I, for one, handle all relational conflict. <laughs> I never react. I'm never emotional. I'm just like Jesus Zen all of the time. <laughs> no, I'm not. But my point is, think of that six-stage thing from last week about cycles of community. You make it a lot farther around the circle with a heart posture like that. In fact, I would go so far as to say you can't stay in any long-term relationship without an operating system of honor or mutual respect and value and gratitude. So how do we live as a countercultural community of honor? Well, our practice for the week ahead is all up at practicingtheway.org community. The next emotionally healthy relationship skill is called look beneath the surface. It's fantastic. Don't miss community this week. But, you know, as we think about just the week ahead, this is a really easy one to put into practice. I mean, to begin, most likely, if your experience of this teaching is anything like mine, with repentance, you might just want to spend some time, even tonight as we worship, as we honor God, you might want to spend a little time just with your mind open, God, is there anyone that I've dishonored? And with no guilt, no shame, um, don't ignore it, I would encourage you, and don't just say sorry to God in your mind. Do something about it. If you've dishonored somebody, go make it right this week. Apologize to them, honor them, make restitution to them, whatever it looks like for you. Whenever you can, just make it right. And then I think, what would it look like to just begin to live this way? It's so easy. Like, what if you just were to take on a challenge for the next month to get it into your muscle memory? Every day I will honor at least one person. It literally takes less than a minute to do this half the time. But every day. Here's a few very practical ideas just to put flesh and bone on it. One, speak words of value over people. Just tell somebody, I value you, I respect you. Be specific. This is something I'm grateful for about you and your contribution. Two, write a letter if that's like too embarrassing for you or weird or it's in a, a relationship where they have mixed emotions like with a parent or a spouse or somebody you're crosswise with. Put it in writing like where you can just sit there in the quiet. Puts, write somebody a letter to just honor them. Public praise is another great example. Just like call together the office around the water cooler or the, do we have those anymore? Kombucha on tap, whatever. Um, and just like honor, just call somebody out, honor somebody. Give a gift. Um, again, originally honor had to do with money. If, if you have the resources for that, consider a gift to honor someone. Um, here's an easy one. Make eye contact with people and listen. Like, just stuff that our parents taught us when we were three, and most of us still don't have down. Like, man, just honor somebody. I mean, if somebody famous or if President Obama or whoever for you, like, came up to you, you wouldn't be like, yeah, ooh, that girl's kind of cute. Uh-huh, yeah. 
Like, no, you would, it's an honor to meet you. Eye contact, here, no rush, present. What if we were to treat everyone that way? Here, present, eye contact, from some famous celebrity or a boss to a houseless person on the side of the road. Um, Sixth, give way to another's preferences. Again, we read that line. It can be translated, give preference to one another in honor. So much about living together in community is just about the clash of preferences. I don't mean like ethical or theological preferences. I mean like, do we have vegan bowls or dominoes? Well, that is kind of ethical. Bad example. Um, Whatever. Like just preferences. You know what I mean? What we eat for dinner, where we go out, what movie we watch, how we, like, what if we were to just honor somebody by saying, you know what, like, let's do your idea. Let's do it your way. Not because we're a doormat and we have no sense of self or pride, just a healthy sense of, no, I have a sense of self. Let me, with my own free will, honor your preference. Or finally, draw out a quiet person's preferences. In most communities, um, you have a few kind of type A verbal, like people who dominate the community, (laughs) like me and other people, And, and then a few just really quiet, kind people that go along. And what would it look like you not to just run roughshod over them, but to just suss out, hey, Sarah, what? we would love to hear your preference. We would love to hear your opinion. John, I know you have wisdom to offer on this. What are your thoughts on this? And, and call people out as a way to honor them. Just, there are, these are just a few examples of how to honor people as we refuse to let contempt root in our heart. Now, to end, thank you for your patience with me. I know that was really long. But for this to happen, just a reminder, for us to become a community of honor, we all have to pitch in. I mean, any of us can do this, but to become a community where actually like the, the social pressure, the current to carry us in the direction of people who honor one another as a form of love, we all have to pitch into this. Can you imagine what would happen if we were to become a community where we honor one another above ourselves? where we receive the flow of blessing and spiritual authority from each other, where we bring out the best in each other, where we call out each other's destiny, and where when we get into conflict, and we will, we interact with honor for one another. This is countercultural. As far as I'm aware, nowhere else in the city will you experience this. Our city has a lot of great things on offer. Honor is not one of them. But what if we were to live as an alternative society in humility, with all of our failing, offer the city a whole new way to be human, to live in the body, to live in our sexuality, to live in our finances, to live in community, to relate to one another in honor. What if we were to become a community of honor and a culture of contempt? Let's stand together and pray. Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit bridgetown.church/give for more information. Thanks for listening.